Hello, I'm Randy Shepard, and welcome to My Dog Hunt's podcast. I know that extra fabric on the back of my hunting coat is supposed to be for dead birds. They call it a game bag. But it seems too often I should just install a closet rod and shelf. Lately, in that game bag, I found a pair of ragwool gloves I thought I'd lost many years ago, crusted with dried blood and bird feathers and an old Hunter Orange Jones hat I wore for 25 years until I couldn't find it a couple years ago. Fortunately, it's more resistant to blood than rag wool, so it's resumed its rightful place shielding my noggin. I tend to grow partial to something that's walked with me for more than a thousand miles. Of course, the orange is sun-bleached to the yellow color of a feral town cat. But seriously, I seem to start out each walk with a weight in water bottles equal to a full limit of birds, hoping that my coat fills with game as quickly as it empties of water. Yeah, I know, I end most episodes with promises of another soon to follow. But too often, it's months. Sometimes it feels like a year. I get queries from listeners wondering if I've stopped altogether. It isn't that I don't intend to do more episodes. It's just that I won't talk for talking's sake. If I don't have new stories to tell or better information to offer, you won't be hearing much from me. Fortunately, so far this season's been pretty good, so I'm sure I'm going to have at least a half a dozen podcasts here. I do have some very good information. In spite of all my past ravings about prairie grouse hunting in Nebraska, and the Sandhills in particular, I'm telling you now, don't go. I'm not sure just what has happened in the past few years, including this year, but the birds are very scarce. I recently talked to a Sandhills rancher who said he doesn't understand it either. He said he always had good numbers of grouse and in the past few years, they seem to have disappeared. He said he hasn't seen a single grouse this year. I had another listener report that he has a friend who at the time had spent three days in the sandhills and hadn't flushed a bird. I did some online reading and found a recent paper by Berg, I think maybe it's Bill Berg, analyzing old lek and harvest surveys in Nebraska. His results were that sharptails are moving further northwest towards the panhandle and being displaced by prairie chickens. Unfortunately, not by enough prairie chickens. I'll continue looking into this, but in the meantime, don't waste your precious hunting time in the sandhills. You will learn in an upcoming episode, there I go again, that I found fantastic numbers of sharptails in South Dakota this year. As a caution, I've hunted some of those covers for many years and know where the grouse hang out, but I had days when I flushed 60 to 80 grouse in a couple of hours several days like that. Of course, those numbers in short cover made my dogs a little wild, which complemented the fact that the birds were a little wild themselves. But three bird limits were assured all seven days of my hunt. It's okay, those of you following possession limits. I ate sharp tails in camp nearly every night to stay under the possession limit. I hunted three days before pheasant opener and four days during the pheasant season. This trip will practically tell itself. Soon, guys, soon. I left home in late September for the first leg of two trips to Idaho. This was mostly a scouting mission to find better chucker and hunt ground and then meet up with a grandson to introduce him to bird hunting. 
I've taken him out shooting clays on a couple of visits, and he decided that he'd like to shoot a bird to see what it feels like. He and his sister tried sharp-tailed grouse steaks and proclaimed them the best meat they'd ever eaten. That's enough to make anyone want to be a bird hunter. His home state of Idaho has a limited sharp-tail season for the month of October and in the eastern quarter of the state. Though I visited them in Pocatello within the sharp-tail range and in October, I never chased their sharp-tails. It didn't make sense to me to travel to Idaho to hunt birds I can find much closer to home. But for this trip, I knew that sharp-tails would be the easiest bird for a new shotgunner to connect on if an old shotgun hunter could find them for him. But I started out in the center of the state tromping some old valley quail bottoms that had been good to me in the past. I wanted to start out on easier ground and gradually hunt myself into mountain shape. I was expecting large coveys, as I had before, and in following with reports I'd heard. But that wasn't the case. The birds I saw were very wild for the first few weeks of the season. That area had grown in population several fold the past few years, and it appeared that more than a few of the new residents were bird hunters. So I headed higher to a near area where I found decent hun hunting. At the first stop, Chaos flushed a small covey of quail and I took one. That was the only quail of my trip. We crossed the road and dropped down into a valley with a spring that that covey had traveled from to feed in the sagebrush. There were a lot of quail tracks in the bottom, more than that covey should have left, but the birds must have moved out into the sage hills to feed. I was a little disappointed, but it was good to be in fresh air with a dog and gun. We worked four miles of hills for huns, but again, didn't find a bird. Last year, I would have flushed three to four cubbies in that walk. I know, I know, if you read everything that I have about bird hunting in Idaho, you must be thinking I was walking parking lots. Idaho is supposed to be littered with multiple species of birds. I know that state has been kind to many bird hunters, but really not for me. I've hunted Idaho many more times than either Oregon or Nevada, but I found better bird hunting in those states than Idaho. I'm not sure why I keep returning. I decided to take the rest of the afternoon off and search for sheds in a burned area that I found several nice muley sheds in the past. All I stumbled onto was remnants of a chalk moose shed. Still kind of cool, because it's the only moose shed I've ever found, but not impressive. I left the dogs and gun in the truck for the walk, because like I said, it had burned the previous year, and there was little cover. On my return to the rig, I flushed the largest covey of huns I moved on the entire trip, about 15 to 18 birds. We hunted more of the local stream thickets and found several small coveys of quail, but none that I'd shoot. It was time to head to Hell's Canyon. I knew that it would take pretty spectacular chucker hunting for me to stake a camp on it, but again, I was disappointed. I'm pretty well convinced that those guys on YouTube who say they're hunting Hell's Canyon are exaggerating their location. Sure, it's romantic and inspiring to say you're hunting the most rugged chucker country in the country, but I drove 18 miles of the 30-mile canyon before I decided to try a climb but I just couldn't find a combination of grass, sage, and rock that looked like it would hold chucker to me. I believe those guys are actually hunting along Brownlee Reservoir just south of the Bad Canyon. 
If you knew me better, you'd understand that I don't coddle my bird dogs. I hunt them through the most hellish cover this side of Hell's Canyon if there are birds there. But there's no way I'd take one of my dogs on those mountainsides. Not because I don't think they would eagerly and effectively put up birds. It's just that after the trigger, unless the birds flew uphill, even dead birds would tumble a long, long way down before becoming lodged in sage or broken rock. Cripples would likely end up on the road at the base. I'd like to think that chaos and mayhem would hesitate before flinging themselves off a rock bench for a bird, but what if they didn't hesitate? And back to those videos, the road at the base of Hell's Canyon isn't dirt or gravel like in their films. It's paved. I didn't see any vids of guys crossing or parking along paved roads to climb for chucker. In my 18 miles of canyon, there was only one road leading up the side. I drove it for several miles, and the higher I climbed, the more forested it became. I know there may be parts of the bad canyon that I didn't see, and in talking to a serious Idaho bird hunter, he said there are areas that you can drive to from the forested top that lead closer to the canyon and chucker. But I wasn't searching for the toughest chucker hunting in the world, just better than I'd previously experienced. This was a disappointment for me. I was really looking forward to hunting Chucker in Hell's Canyon. But unless I can find another avenue to get to a better area than I saw, I don't believe that's going to happen. I headed back south. Just as a side note, when you hear that Hell's Canyon is deeper than the Grand Canyon, it doesn't appear to be from the river below. I believe they're measuring from the top of the bordering mountains down to the Snake River, where the Grand Canyon is actually a gorge. There was an access yes property I'd passed on my way to the canyon that looked promising for Hans, and I spent the night there. I took both pups with me in the morning, and we roamed over a couple of sections without finding any birds. There were steep cuts between the hills with flowing creeks, aspens, and berry bushes. They looked like they were about 300 to 400 feet down. Most of the bottoms were very narrow, like 5 to 10 yards wide, but every few hundred yards there were broader bottoms with enough canopy that a guy might find a rough grouse in them. I decided to regroup at the truck and then head down with both dogs. If you ever find yourself in that kind of country and you want to descend or ascend these canyons, you do it in the cuts. Everything else is too steep. Oh, but you'll figure that out all on your own. I picked one that seemed somewhat gradual, but it proved otherwise. It wouldn't be so bad if the cattle and wildlife stayed on one bank or the other of a cut, so you didn't have to try to fight your way through the brush in the bottoms to stay on their trails. Once you get within 100 feet or so from the bottom, the cuts become choked with brush. Those branches are great for handholds to keep your feet from sliding out from under you, but the thorns are hard on gloves when they do. I've navigated my share of clear cuts full of slash and wet swamps of head-high cattails filling my eyes, nose, and mouth with fluff, all very uncomfortable. This environment was different, but the feeling was about the same. Soon near the bottom, I noticed that most of the bushes were stripped of branches and then I almost stepped in it. I have an elk hunting friend who described bear poop to me. He said black bear poop is about six to eight inches in diameter and maybe two inches high. 
Anything twice that size is grizzly bear. But there were cattle in here. Wouldn't cattle be afraid of bears? Especially big bears? I took pictures. There were piles of scat every few feet. Big piles. The size of a 12-inch dinner plate and tall enough to fill a salad bowl. Sorry to use dinnerware for scale. I know you eat off the stuff. But for your sake of determining if a retreat is advised, I thought I should reference something that all my listeners are familiar with. There was old poop and fresh poop. In my haste to traverse through the claustrophobic brush and across the stream to the open hillside, I didn't dip a finger to test for warmth. Some was old, but too much, way too much, was fresh enough that it still glistened. I made a lot of assertive human-type noises, encouraging myself and pups to get the hell across as quickly as possible. For the hope of finding birds, what kind of idiot would meander through grizzly bear feeding grounds hoping to find a few eight-ounce birds on the other side? Well, the same kind of guy who'll kick a mean-ass farm dog in the chops to get to the door to ask for permission on posted ground. That scare was worth the birds we found in the next range of hills. We worked up a fairly wide cut, and when less than 100 yards from the stream, the pups put up a nice cubby of huns. They flushed from the hillside to my left and attempted to escape over the top edge. I got off two shots with the wingy and dropped my first hunt of the trip. Another 50 yards up, and I saw another larger covey of 12 to 15 huns scrambling away from the dogs in two inches of grass and not 15 yards in front of me. As I watched, I was afraid they might just keep running instead of flying all the way over the other side before the dogs caught up. It would be embarrassing to be that close to that many huns and not get a shot at a flying bird. Luckily, the lead bird took flight at about 25 yards. I hit him well, then missed another. As the dogs were running for the retrieve, a late bloomer flushed and I killed it as well. At least the dogs could have their own retrieve without fighting over a single bird. With the dread of recrossing that stream bed fading from my mind, I was feeling pretty good about these hills. By now, the dogs had quit hunting and were running ahead like there must be more birds around every bend. It was getting harder for me to keep up. They topped out well ahead of me, and I just caught a glimpse of their noses testing the wind and tails wagging furiously. Oh crap, they smelled birds on the other side, and I needed to hustle. I cleared the crest just as they flushed a cubby of chucker from the opposite slope. Already out of range, I pressed forward hoping for a late flusher. Fortunately, a couple lingered and I dropped the last one. This is when the pups affirmed my opinion that it's always better to drop two birds than one. Each dog had a hold of a wing and they stretched that chucker's wingspan to the width of a condor. That chucker must have had tenacious tendons to keep his body in one piece. Chaos won and a few laps later she allowed me to touch the bird and minutes later left the bird with me so she could hunt with maybe. There were several more draws leading from valleys to tops in this clump of hills, and who wouldn't believe, after this first draw, that eight hunts and maybe a few more chucker would be virtually assured in the next few hours. I say few hours because I would guaranteed be across that bear feeding grounds well before dark. Well, we walked every draw and checked out every rock pile and ledge that might hold chucker without moving another bird. 
Oh, well, it was still a good afternoon in light of my past few days in Idaho. We made it back into our camp hills without incident, but all the climbing had slowed me. I cut across a section of the hills that we didn't hunt earlier, with both dogs still competing for range. Little Mayhem flushed a covey of about ten hunts, and I managed to scratch one down. She even got to the cripple before chaos, and she enjoyed one of her few uncontested retrieves. Chaos ignored her only due to the level of threats I screamed at her. All in all, it was a good afternoon, bringing four hunts and a chucker back to the truck. With big plans for the next morning, I was determined to recross, make quick work of the hills we hunted the afternoon before, then cross another valley and stream and check out the next range of hills. There was a lot of BLM here, stretching to the horizon. With no road access, it would take a fine measure of a man and tough brace of dogs camping over there to even hunt a quarter of it. I just took chaos on this walk, and we worked hills and valleys for four hours, only seeing a cubby of hunts. They flushed downhill and behind me, screwing my swing into the ground. That's a nice way of not taking responsibility for my failure to adjust my stance rather than twisting into a pretzel. But once again, on a hilltop in our camp range, Chaos flushed a medium covey of Hans, but I missed twice. Or I thought. A little later, Chaos was scrambling in the rocks on the backside of the flush hill and pulled out a cripple. The next morning, I ran maybe through some hills that the cattle hadn't grubbed down, fully expecting to flush a few birds, but again, nothing. I'm not saying these hills were void of birds because my dogs didn't find them. I know better. They pretty much just hunt a swath in front of me. I try to pick the best routes that I expect to find birds, but that doesn't stand for much. A guy with bigger running dogs might have done great where I found few birds, but a guy hunting flushers has to accept that it's his job to get the dogs close to birds and theirs to get them in the air. Some days they don't do their job, and some days I don't do mine. But fortunately, there are usually a few days when our whole team does pretty good. I decided it might be time to return to an area south of here that I found Hans and a few chuckers in on every previous trip. We arrived at near dark to a drizzling rain that must have been going on for days. The two-track was gumbo, and I could see where four-wheel drive vehicles had to shift out of two-wheel drive just to back out. Not me. I overnighted just off the highway. I had hoped that the overnight wind might have dried things out, but it did not. So it was walk in for the first mile before hunting could begin. I brought both pups along, not caring if they flushed every bird wild. I just wanted to see if there were any birds around. We were a hundred yards from my rig when a semi passed and blew his air horn for us. It always makes me feel good having my opportunity to hunt appreciated by someone who doesn't have the same. We walked and walked. Every draw that I put birds out of in the past, we moved nothing. I decided to cut across to another range of hills where a spring that was good in a drought year. In one of the eroded cuts, I happened to look down when dodging rocks and noticed a piece of petrified wood. Well, you know me in petrified wood. I wasn't sure at first, but yes, it was, and there was another and another in the jumble. Not shards or leavings. These had nice color and were the size of a football. I carried the largest one while hunting for the next few hours, but even with a pretty rock for good luck, 
still didn't move a bird. All I could think of was it had to be hail. I don't know what could have hurt bird populations that bad. My intuition about birds isn't so bad that in a full day of walking, I can't find even some of a few. I decided that the next morning I would return to my triangulation of the Rockwood location with a bucket and bag to see what I could find, then relocate to other bird ground. I let the dogs rest in the truck and set out on my own. The lane was still too wet for two-wheel drives, so I knew I had a two-mile walk to the right hill. That's a lot of twos. Well, my triangulation isn't what it once was. There was a juniper tree on the fence line, point of rock outcropping on that hill, and the cell tower on the horizon. But this wasn't right. I wandered in concentric circles like I was searching for a crippled bird, then larger circles like I was lost. Over on another hillside, there's something white sticking up out of the ground. As I approached, I found small white shards on the lower slope. Climbing, the pieces grew larger until I could see bark and growth rings on some of the stone. The pieces I saw sticking out of the ground were the remains of a petrified stump. I'd read about petrified stump fields where the ash didn't fall deep enough to save the main tree from rot, but it was deep enough to preserve the stumps. There were remnants of five stumps on the hill, but this wasn't the location I found the day before. I can tell you the regulations on harvesting petrified wood on all federal lands. This being BLM, limited personal take at 25 pounds per person per day, plus one piece up to 25 pounds, with a total of 250 pounds annually per person. And this collection has to be for personal use. You cannot sell it. My wife and I had just started a large rock garden before I left for my trip, and this would be a welcome addition. I'm not embarrassed to say that I spent five mornings carrying what I guessed to be 25 pounds in a bucket and a large piece I knew to be less than 25 pounds in a bag, two miles in empty and two miles out for the first three days before the lane dried out enough to drive in for a half mile. Many of the pieces are opalized in purple, blue, white, and tan. Okay, I'm off my petrified tangent. This isn't to say I stop bird hunting. Every afternoon I widen my search by a few miles, still determined to find birds somewhere. But I didn't, not even one small covey. By now, I'd been sleeping in my van for ten nights and was ready for a real bed. I sent a text to in-laws in Pocatello asking for a bed on Friday night. They were happy to have me and would just as soon I always hunted out of their home. I'd spent more than a few days visiting them on previous trips, but never hunted the area at all. I'd just never heard anything good about bird hunting eastern Idaho. Well, you can imagine their surprise when I knocked on their door only to find I had my dates screwed up and it was Thursday night, not Friday. The next morning, I set out to find sharptails for the following weekend when my step-grandson would arrive. I ended up on the wrong side of a large game management area, and after several days of rain, I wasn't about to attempt to cross the valley on a dirt road to gain the other side. I found a small piece of native grass and sage that looked like western sharptail habitat. It was about a mile long and 200 yards wide. If you don't know sharptails, that's very small cover by sharp tail standards. 
These are different subspecies of sharptails than you find further east. These are Colombian sharptails. In my view, they're slightly smaller than prairie sharptails most of you might be familiar with. I let both dogs out and they flushed a pair near the end of our walk. I dropped the bird to my left, but the other had caught the wind and was sailing by to my right. Yeah, I missed him. I was happy to have a bird from such a small cover, but I really didn't learn anything about the birds from that short walk. The following Saturday and Sunday, I palled around with Corey, my stepson-in-law, and watched him trout fish on Saturday. Saturday afternoon, he received a text from his next-door neighbor asking if he had a bird hunter staying with him. I figured he must have noticed my My Dog Hunt sticker on the back of my van. With an enclosed van, it's tough to tell I'd be a bird hunter. He asked if it was okay to stop over so we could talk. Well, hell yes. Greg was a great guy running a couple of setters. He was heading to Montana in a few days to chase sharptails and pheasants. I told him about my search for Idaho sharptails, that I really didn't care about shooting more than a few for a family dinner, but I needed to locate birds for Carson and maybe his dad, Corey. Greg said I'd find sharptails on access yes ground in just about any direction an hour out of town. He also asked if I'd ever hunted dusky grouse. I told him I'd like to, but don't know much about them except they're early and reverse migrators. I thought maybe they were already higher than I wanted to hunt. He thought I could still find a few lower and suggested a couple of mountain ranges to hunt. I went to Sharptail Fields that Monday and loosed both dogs in the first field. We weren't a quarter mile from my rig when they flushed a large group, probably 15 birds. I was awkward as a sloth on snowshoes, but still able to bang away three times. Not a feather. I looked around to make sure no one witnessed my pathetic shooting, but by the time I reloaded, chaos came out of a draw with a still warm, dead sharp tail. I was only slightly less embarrassed. The daily bag limit in Idaho is two, and their season is only open for the month of October. There was a smaller plot a few miles away that I reasoned most guys with big running dogs wouldn't mess with. The dogs would have most of the field covered before guns were loaded. Season had been open for a few days, so I thought just maybe a few birds had found refuge there. It was hot, almost 80 degrees, too hot for the pups, so I left them in the truck and went for a short walk. It was a quarter mile before I bumped about 10 grouse from a sage clump, and I had the limit. I drove around visually checking a couple more access yes fields and thought it shouldn't be too tough to get the guys into a few birds. I have stated many times on podcasts that a guy doesn't need a dog to hunt sharptails or chickens or rough grouse. All you need to know is a little about where these birds loaf and feed. All three of these species will normally flush when a hunter approaches within 10 to 20 yards, usually closer to 20. The only sharptail state that I haven't hunted dogless is Montana. But if it's true in Nebraska, the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Idaho, I can't believe no, I refuse to believe that Montana birds are any different. The day before, Corey and I cooked up six huns, a chucker, and a sharp tail for a dinner for five. These weren't wild game eaters, but the meat was cleaned up while some were still asking for more. Sharp tail were again voted the favorite, so when I returned with two birds this evening, 
They thought it was imperative that I shoot a couple more for the upcoming weekend when Carson would be home. I thought that would be an easy request to fill. I stopped at a new field the next day, and when the dogs flushed a group of a dozen or so, I shot once and two grouse fell. I've done that many times on Hans, once on Chucker, and a few times with different species of quail. But out of hundreds of sharptails and chickens, this was a first. I was really glad I didn't already have a bird. I spent another day walking some more yes ground for sharptails just to make sure that I could have a backup plan when the boys wanted to go. But then I spent a couple more days searching for ruffs and duskies. I had a half a dozen flushes, but I didn't see a feather. Fall had just passed peak color, but the trees were still fully leafed. I didn't mind. By now, the dogs had been weaned into pretty good shape, and so was I. When Friday rolled around, Carson was home and we headed out. It turned out he had purchased a hunting license, like he said, but it was for Utah, where he was going to college, not Idaho. I had mentioned to his dad that they both needed a sharp-tailed sage-grouse stamp, but Carson still didn't have one. This is a strange thing to me about Idaho. We were in the field ready to hunt when I asked about the stamp and learned he really had nothing. He called the help number to purchase a license over the phone because it was impossible online. He was told that if he didn't have a valid Idaho driver's license, he couldn't purchase a resident tag. I asked for the phone and questioned if the lady was certain that as an Idaho resident going to school out of state, he wasn't eligible for a resident license. She said no. I explained that I'm familiar with regulations in many states, and Idaho was the first one I was aware of that didn't consider college student and military as residents. She said we could go to Fish and Game Office and discuss this, but she wouldn't release a resident license on the phone. Well, we were already in the field, and it was 50 miles to an office, so I paid the $188 for a non-resident license. The funny thing is, once it was issued, it had his Idaho address printed on it. Well, at least now we could load up and hunt. We walked three miles of a range of hills that I shot the first grouse out of a few days earlier. Nothing. But there were a lot of hunters out. We were constantly deviating to avoid them. So we dropped down into a lower range to work our way back to the truck. Still, three more groups of hunters. Some of them were shooting, but not us. Maybe we were too cordial because they were shooting where we had intended to hunt. Anyway, it was afternoon, and Carson hadn't even seen a game bird. I brought along my wife's Benelli for Carson to shoot, as it was the only gun in the family that he was fairly consistent with. I took him to the same small section that I shot my last bird out of. There were more than a few single birds scattered about, and Carson got shooting. After he missed a few, I decided to shoot one so he wouldn't get skunked. No young man wants to go home to his family and tell them that they got skunked. It wasn't long when Carson said, I see a grouse on the ground. I was a little skeptical and asked if he was sure. He said, yeah, it's sitting under a clump of sagebrush looking right at me. I said, well, walk towards it and shoot when it flushes. Well, it flushed and Carson missed a couple of times. That's when I thought I should have told him to just shoot it on the ground. I apologized to him that being it would have been his first bird ever, I should have told him to shoot it on the ground. But I was proud to hear Carson reply that he didn't want to remember that he didn't shoot his first bird flying.
that's a good young man. We just had chaos out with us. She was hot and I was out of water. I advised Carson on how I would hunt the rest of the field and left to drop chaos off at the rig, planning to be back in a half hour or so. On the way out, I was walking along a wheat stubble field and she flushed a covey of hunts. I was surprised to miss with my first shot, but dropped the same bird with the second. I watered chaos, kenneled her, gave her a hot dog, had to slip a hot dog to little maybe, and then headed back out. When I caught up with Carson, he was celebrating that he had shot a sharp tail while I was away. I was very happy for him and hoping he would one day become a bird hunter. I was still carrying a gun, but was done shooting unless he crippled a bird that didn't fall. He got a couple more decent opportunities, but he wasn't used to having to be constantly alert, expecting a flush. They always seemed to catch him off guard, you know, like they do us as well. Actually, I think it, he wasn't paying attention because he was texting everyone he knew to let him know that he had shot his first bird. Oh, Carson and I hunted again the next day, three different places. We didn't see a bird, not a single sharp tail. Um, but we stayed out of that little small section that we shot birds in the day before. We were going to save that for if, in case his dad wanted to go with us on Sunday. You can imagine my frustration Sunday morning when expecting Carson and his dad to be raring to go shoot some birds. I'm trying really hard to not seem overly anxious to get out hunting before the inevitable Sunday crowd mats down the cover. To their surprise, it was almost 11 a.m. and the Vikings are playing the Bears at noon. Well, we can't miss that game with Illinois, their home state. Finally, they were shuffling around for boots and hats. I mentioned to their mother, wife, stepdaughter, I'll be happy if we even see a couple of birds. Because it was going to be about 2.30 before we even left the house. Our first and only stop is a small cupboard that had already given up birds. I just hoped that no one had already hunted it. You know, like after six Sunday hours, one month season, guys had just driven by. I suggested to Carson that they walk the same pattern that we had a couple days earlier, as I was going to air the dogs out in some thick, low cover that wouldn't hold grouse and then meet up with them. I kenneled the dogs because I knew that not being bird hunters, these guys were going to require close flushes to get off an in-range shot. I caught up with them in the back and fell in line. I couldn't help but notice they were applying the straight line technique very loosely. But before I could correct them, a group of nine Sharpies flushed 20 yards in front of me, but still well within range of the other two. That number was verified by Carson. He was pretty good at keeping a tally on how many birds we moved. I shot the far left bird, knowing neither of them would choose that bird as they were to my right. My bird fell while several protest shots were fired at the departing. We met at my bird, and they were really excited as they said they flushed a cubby of seven while I was with the dogs. They both got shots then, too, but no birds. I should mention that before leaving my rig, I was doling out shells. Five to Carson, and five to Corey, then five more to Carson, and when I tried to give another five to Corey, he insisted he had enough, and could borrow from Carson if necessary. So I kept five for myself. These guys were both athletes, and I only reminded them that like passing a basketball, you shoot where the bird's going to be, not where it is. 
I said, if you keep swinging your barrel at the shot, you shouldn't have to leave these birds more than a foot. Just don't shoot right at them. I also told them to shoot away, as this is supposed to be fun, knowing that they would probably still shoot at birds well out of range, but they wouldn't do any harm, as I was certain they'd be shooting several to many feet behind them. This is when I informed that maintaining a straight line wasn't just for safety purposes. You also do it to allow everyone an equal chance at a flush. If one guy's 20 or 30 feet ahead and he flushes birds, the other hunters have less opportunity to shot than the leader. That kind of settled in on the next pass. I was to the left, Corey in the middle, and Carson nearest fresh ground. I knew that I was walking in the same path I had on the last run, but really didn't care. Several singles flushed in front of the guys with lead flying but no drifting feathers. Then a single flushed in front of Corey, and to all of our amazement, he shot it. We all converged on the fall, and soon after recovering the bird, Carson and I were side by side when a pair flushed from sagebrush 20 yards ahead. I shot quickly, dropping the bird on my side, thinking it would be easier for Carson if he only had one bird to concentrate on. But he didn't shoot. Then another single flush from the same bush at 15 yards, and he still didn't shoot. When I asked what he was waiting for, he said he was out of shells. I said, Ken? He replied, no, Dad ran out a while ago and I gave him some of mine. So I gave Carson the three I had left, and his dad borrowed one of those as well. I again suggested that they just keep walking the quadrant like we had been, and I'd go back to the rig for more shells. It was over a half a mile to one way back to the truck. I heard more shooting while I was gone, and when I returned, Dad had shot his second sharp tail for the Idaho limit. By the end of the day... At the end of the few hours we had to hunt in the afternoon, Carson was disappointed that he didn't get a bird, but I had to remind him that a couple days earlier he had gotten shots at five grouse and me only one. That's sometimes that's the way hunting goes. I have to say, I was amazed that we could return from a three-hour Idaho sharptail hunt with four birds. If you've followed my stories, you know I've hunted sharptails in a lot of states for many years, but had low expectations for Idaho. But I have to say, when hunting good cover, I and we moved a lot of birds. The only situation that I can imagine with me ever shooting another Idaho sharptail is if I already had a limit of hunts. With Idaho's short season and low bag limit, I think they should be a resident-only bird. I have to take a break here. I'm recording this in early November, and I'm just this afternoon returning from an Iowa pheasant hunt. Well, not really a hunt by my standards. I just went out for a couple of hours before the 4.30 Iowa closing. I took both pups more to keep them in shape than to kill birds. I ran Chaos first, and she did pretty well considering the height of the cover. Iowa's native grass fields are not like the Dakotas and further west. This is five-foot-tall seed heads with the thickest cover from waist high down. If there's marsh grass mixed in, it's almost impossible to keep track of a knee-high springer. A guy just has to trust that they're near. It's especially difficult with a strong wind waving the tops. You have to watch for a wake in the movement to indicate where your dog is. With decent hearing condition, I can keep track of them within 25 to 30 yards. 
but it's been very windy here the past couple of days, so if they're downwind and I can't see their movement, I pretty well just trust them. Anyway, I can see Chaos plowing through cover about 10 yards away, and her tail's in helicopter mode. She punches a bird out at about 15 yards, but it's quartering away. Doesn't have much of a tail, and I can't see color. At about 30 yards, I hear a gargling sound, a juvenile's version of a cackle. He was just skimming the top of the cover when I shot. He crashed into some weeds, but I know he's not dead. I keep my eye on the very weed I saw him hit and start a fast walk to the location, urging chaos to follow. At this point, between Iowa and South Dakota, I shot about nine roosters over chaos, and she's been much better at marking falls and recovering one running cripple. I've been bragging on her to my wife and confident she'll get this bird, but she's prancing around me like she doesn't have a clue what's going on. You know, when you do the dead bird chant and tones to excite the dog, but this was a single flush and she wasn't in that thick of cover when he did flush. Why isn't she ahead of me? I won't bore you with my frustration, but she never came up with the bird. The difficult part is when a dog runs off like they're trailing. You have to trust them, because in 10 yards I won't be able to see her, and with the 20 mile an hour wind gusting to 30, I wouldn't be able to hear her either. After 10 minutes of her returning and then running off in another direction, I'm convinced she needs some water. I didn't carry any with me as I would only be running each dog for about an hour. I led her to a creek 50 yards away and let her cool off, then headed back to concentric circles around my flag. Till we're walking circles 60 yards around the fall. Nothing. By now I'm figuring the pup can't be any worse than this as she's made a couple of long retrieves herself that surprised me. I walked Chaos the half mile back to my rig and brought the little banshee out. She's hell on wheels, longer legged, and slimmer than Chaos. It's a little easier for her to fight her way through the thick grass. I got her headed in the general direction of the old fall, but on the way she bust a pair of hands and roosters 60 yards out. I had no idea she was over there. Eventually, we're back at my flag and she's ripping the cover up like she's going to show me that chaos should be number two out of the truck. Another 15 minutes later, an ever-widening search with no bird. I hate losing a bird. I'm upset at chaos because I can throw four balls in four directions with her at heel and she remembers every one of them, even with belly scratches between retrieves. But she can't find a rooster from a single flush but mostly I'm angry at myself for not killing the bird. But then if a guy kills every bird he hits, he really doesn't need a dog that retrieves. As we surrendered to the predators of crippled birds, maybe took off after a runner and in her zigzag flushes a hen behind me. She didn't even chase it more than a few yards. Then she was trailing another runner. A few minutes later, she had another hen in the air. Then off again, and 50 yards later, she has a rooster up at 30 yards. This should have been an easy shot, but he already had the wind at his back when I came to a stop. I realized my head was high when I shot, but the bird tumbled. Again, I knew he wasn't dead, so I tried to get another one in him before he disappeared in the cover. I couldn't tell if I hit him again or not, but he was down a little over 35 yards away. I held my mark and sensed maybe running up behind me. When we were about eight yards from the fall, she took off to the side, 
not to be seen again for, I don't know, 10 minutes. I pinned a flag but couldn't find a feather. I'm not sure with the wind a few feathers would have been much help. I'm half searching and half worried that I should be looking for my dog rather than the bird. I could say that I didn't trust her completely, but I really didn't trust her at all. I'd had more than a few anxious minutes on opening weekend, blowing tirelessly on my whistle before she'd return. With that, what do you want? I was busy flushing birds. Look on her face. There was about 15 minutes of shooting time left when I hit the bird, and I didn't get back to my rig for another 35 minutes. But we did have the second bird. At least it must have been. It was still alive and maybe pulled it out of a twisted mat of grass 30 yards from where it fell. Either way, I'm counting it as a successful recovery. Okay, I think we were still hunting sharp tails in Idaho. On our way back to the rig, we flushed a covey of hunts on the opposite end of the field from the birds I'd flushed a few days earlier. It was nice to point out to the guys another game bird that they could shoot someday. On the ride home, I explained that these were birds they could hunt any time without a dog. This field was 35 minutes from their door. If they liked the idea of having a secret spot to hunt, which it really wasn't, they should never tell anyone where they hunted. Not anyone. This is Randy Shepard, and if anyone should ask who you're listening to, please speak kindly of my dog hunts.